This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm going to be your host, Jim R. And today we have our guest, Renee L. That's going to be telling us her story of addiction and recovery. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing all right. How are you, Jim? Doing all right. I'm doing well. And uh, we have a group member, Sarah. I want to mention her. She loves it when I say, let's dive in. So let's dive into your story and tell us a little bit about yourself. Maybe let's start as we usually do with your childhood. Okay. Um, well, I grew up on the state line border between um, Wisconsin and Illinois, so Beloit area. And I would imagine uh, there's probably not too many people familiar with Beloit, but it's kind of an armpit of a city. Um, you say not, an armpit? Yeah, it's not I've a super the, special place. <laughs> I've heard the same thing people call. I'm in New Jersey, and I've heard the same term for us. Yeah. Well, think of it in the same vein. Um, small town, high crime. Uh, it's on the traffic way between Chicago and Madison, where a lot of people try and move to to get out of Chicago. Um, so a lot of people end up stuck in between, and Beloit is one of those places. And um, so lots of gang activity, lots of crime. Um, oddly enough, my using story didn't really start there. Um, I grew up there. Had, uh, Did you have both parents? <clears throat> I had a mom and a stepfather. My biological father took off when I was about two. Um, grew up with two white parents, which was a little odd for a little kid of color. Um, so my identity was always a little in flux as a kid. Um, my dad is black, so, um, I grew up with his family who's black, uh, as part of my life, but that's a whole nother story. They were abusive, so it wasn't, um, wasn't a great experience. Um, how were they abusive? Oh, in about every way you could think of. (laughs) Um, they were extraordinarily religious, but in, um, a pretty, abusive way and um, my stepfather or my my, not my stepfather um, my grandfather was um, sexually abusive Um, my grandmother knew what was going on Um, you know so there there was just a lot of really messed up dynamics yeah Um, so that wasn't a great experience with them and then I was at home kind of living what looked like a very middle-class existence with my two white parents, um, but with super heavy depression and anxiety. And um, Was it diagnosed at the time, or you just look back now and recognize it? Um, no, it got, a, it got diagnosed by the time I was about 11, and um, 
I started seeing my first therapist at 11. I developed my first eating disorder. Well, really by the time I was six, but by the time I was 11, it was diagnosed. Um, so I had a lot of therapeutic intervention by the time I was 11, but um, nothing really helped. You know, they put me on antidepressants, et cetera. Um, I don't think anybody realized it was trauma. Um, I didn't really ex understand the full extent of the trauma until I went to college and started having flashbacks and other PTSD related um, symptoms. I really kind of fell apart in college. Um, didn't finish college and instead I moved up to Madison um, and that's when I started partying that's when I started drinking heavily and um, dabbled in some heart of drugs and just kind of became a weekend warrior um, and that went on for a long time um, ended up on disability because of my uh, mental health um, Taking a step back real quick, what were your relationships like growing up with friends and schoolmates and things like that? Was was there anything they noticed at school? What was going on with um, life? No, and it, it, the relations weren't good. Um, I went to a very white school. I was one of only two kids of color in the in the whole school. There was definite racism. Um, I didn't understand at the time that it was racism, um, but it was pretty blatant actually. The kids on the playground would call me all kinds of racist names. I just didn't recognize what they were because my mother wasn't really teaching me about racism and what to recognize. She didn't really, I think, expect that to happen. So, and I wasn't telling her what they were calling me, you know, and they're calling me black crayon and, and all kinds of horrible names at school. And, um, that's why they say kids could be cruel. Yeah. So I grew up with a lot of bullying. Um, and it wasn't confined to the, the kids. You know, I had a teacher smack me in sixth grade. I had, you know, it was, it was not, not a great growing up um, in terms of the, the school and the kids, other kids. I didn't have a lot of friends. Um, I was really a loner. I read a lot, I watched a lot of TV, and I ate, so. Was food an addiction for you also? Mm-hmm, it was my first addiction, really, that an escape of any kind, like fantasy books, TV. Um, it was really loose, anything that would get me away from reality, so um, I binged, start, like I said, starting at about age six, I would binge on food. Um, and then once I got into my twenties, um, started purging as well. So really developed a full-blown eating disorder. Well, I mean, by six, but with, um, pretty more lethal consequences, I guess I would say, um, by the time I got into my twenties. So, you know, yeah, it was, there wasn't any real safe haven in my growing up um there wasn't really anybody I could talk to my mom was very self-occupied I guess I would say she had her own trauma growing up which I learned about later in life 
and um, she was just trying to make the best of things. She was in a really unhappy marriage. Um, and so she just really wasn't there for me. I knew she loved me. Um, and I think that was my saving grace, honestly, my mom's love. Um, because I did growing up, I did grow up knowing somebody loved me. You grew up knowing what? Somebody loved me. Okay. And that's important. So, it, I think it was important. I think it, it, it gave me a spark to survive. Because honestly, with everything I did go through between my, my grandparents, um, my, the bullying, and, and then uh, I also had some sexual abuse through a babysitter. Um, it was a lot for a kid to go through. And I think my, my mom's love of me, I think, gave me that, like, you know, some belief inside that I was, like, worth staying alive. So, because I was pretty suicidal in my teens, but I never went through with it. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't try later on in life, but. Um, in your teens, was it just, um thoughts and things like that creeping in mm -hmm. that's when they first started yeah and then by the time I was in my 20s I did attempt several times so once the partying started and things felt more bleak I think after I dropped out of college moved to Madison started drinking a lot depression was worse flashbacks um eating disorder got worse it just started spiraling so you graduate high school you go to college you dropped out of college and now you're living in Madison you said uh -huh. what were you doing to survive day to day you know, did you have a job or how did as you live I moved up there with a job uh, canvassing for Greenpeace <laughs> okay um every college student's dream job um but I quickly deteriorated. And like I said, I, I ended up um, not able to work and then applied for disability and received disability because of my mental health. Um, so I, for a long time, I worked very part-time and lived on disability um, most of my 20s. And then slowly started being able to work again in my late 20s. And um, yeah, then I ended up in working in insurance of all things, but <laughs> you know, it paid the bills, held a lot of different uh, jobs, bookstores, uh, daycare, uh, you know, not a real profession or career, but a lot of different kinds of jobs. Yeah. And eventually I landed in insurance. So what age did you say it was right around this time that your, your use got heavy? What were your drugs of choice or drug of choice? Um, in my 20s and most of my 30s, it was alcohol. Um, and I really was a weekend partier. I would drink during the week. So I, I use that term loosely. Um, it was any time I could binge drink, really. Um, 
and working a lot of retail jobs and such, it was anytime I didn't have to be at work in the morning. Um, but it was a lot of alcohol, a lot of weed. Um, like I said, I dabbled in cocaine and, and a couple other sort of random, um, somebody gave me some mushrooms, and, you know, like just little things here and there, but, um, I, I really was confined to alcohol most of my early using career. Um, so a good 15, 20 years, um, I just consisted that way. Um, it didn't get bad. It never got to a point where I had any sort of legal consequences or um, lost a job or anything like that. I just kept doing my thing. And um, I eventually went back to work and I was working full time. And, uh, and then one day I found out after um, drinking and having picked up somebody in a bar uh, that I was pregnant. And that sort of tilted the whole axis of my life. <laughs> um, I gave birth to my daughter in 2002. Um, her name is Noelle. She's um, the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. Um, she caused a lot of changes in my life. Um, I had gained a lot of weight over the years from the drinking and the binging. Um, and I decided to have bariatric surgery, um, in 2008, because I was really not able to kind of keep up with her you know taking care of an infant on your own is exhausting and I was extra exhausted because I was carrying extra weight um so I had gastric bypass surgery in 2008 and that also sort of tilted my my axis back the other way <laughs> um I kept my life kept doing 180s um I wasn't emotionally prepared for the sort of mental changes that would come with that surgery. What do you mean by mental changes that come along with it? Um, I think when you go down from, and I was almost 400 pounds at this point, Wow, so you were really, really large. I was large. Um, and I lost over half my body weight. Um, you know, and I got down to a quote-unquote normal weight. And I suddenly had a very different experience in life. And let me tell you, if you don't believe that there is sizeism in the world go from being to 400 pounds to being, you know, 150. Um, and you'll see how differently the world treats you. Uh, people opened doors for me, people gave me seats, people 
talked to me and said hi. People didn't give me dirty looks when I ordered regular food. <laughs> um, it was just odd the way the whole world changed because of the way I looked. And um, that was really disconcerting. And it, I also started getting a lot of attention, like unwanted affection from, you know, anything from people catcalling on the street to um, people asking me out. And um, I didn't like that. I've been, um, you know, at this point, 30 some years hiding in my own skin. Um, and I wasn't emotionally prepared to deal with the attention. So it was very unsettling and that uh, made me feel very vulnerable. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize what it feels like. I do. I was also, I wasn't 400 pounds, but growing up, I was very heavy. And then when I lost weight, the way People treated me different. Girls treated me different. Just everything in my life changed. And like you said, it made you realize people treat you different and it sucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, uh, I had it, some reaction to that. You know, um, I drank more um, than I had before. And the, they don't tell you this, but... Um, when you have part of your stomach and intestines removed, uh, your the alcohol is actually able to go straight through your stomach into your large intestine, like within a matter of minutes, which gives you sort of an instant drunk. Um, so I was able to get very drunk very quickly um, to the point where I like gave myself alcohol poisoning quite a few times, um, made myself very ill. And I was not a person that blacked out. I never blacked out, no matter how drunk I got. Um, I'd have some fuzzy memories, but I didn't ever black out and do something I don't remember. Um, at least in part, you know. And, uh, but I sure, I sure remember giving myself alcohol poisoning and how sick I was and how difficult it was. Um, so... I started drinking a lot more um, and I started kind of having a re-emergence of PTSD, um, which, you know, I mean, I've had many years of therapy by this point, so PTSD had sort of been under control for me, but um, it's just opened it up again. So I, 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 uh, I really struggled when I lost all the weight with uh, PTSD and more drinking. And um, my eating disorder got really bad. Only this time I just stopped eating. So it just went completely the other way. That sounds like body image plays a real part in your day-to-day -day mental makeup. It has for a long time, you know, it's nowadays it's something I work on, but um, 
you know, it was just so uncomfortable to be so visible. I wanted to become invisible again. And so I just stopped eating and I was like, I'm just going to disappear. Um, and I lost even more weight um, and ended up in eating disorder treatment multiple times for, for refusing to eat. And uh, the whole nine yards, the feeding tube, the, you know, forced treatment and everything. So, yeah, that's when my story really starts to get interesting, uh, when I started going in and out of eating disorder treatment. What happened? What made it, what kicked off the interesting part? So, I was in... Let me, let me get my dates right. So I went to eating disorder treatment and got some help, came home, um, had met uh, some friends, um, some of whom I started dating, um, got into a relationship, was happy. Um, so happy that um, we decided that we were, you know, meant to be together long term. We got um, we got the idea that we wanted to have a baby. So um, my partner and I at the time were both female. Um, so we asked a friend. He would um, be the donor for our baby. And um, I got pregnant because I knew I could. I'd already done it once. <laughs> so um, this was in 2013. Um, I got pregnant with my second child. Um, unfortunately, I lost my son at the beginning of the second trimester. And um, it was a pretty devastating loss. I, it was totally unexpected. Um, you know, even though I was a little bit older, I was in my late thirties. Um, I'd had a very normal pregnancy the first time, got pregnant really easy. Um, so I took it really hard. And since, you know, I've already mentioned I have pretty major depression anyway, I, I fell into a very severe depression. And uh, I also started having chronic pain uh, just all over my body after I had the miscarriage. And what ended up happening is uh, some super smart doctor prescribed me narcotics. Um, like in a Costco size bottle mm. and continue to prescribe me narcotics for the next year. So between 2013 and 2014, my whole world turned upside down. 
I became addicted to narcotics. Um, what narcotics? Which ones? Uh, started with Vicodin. You know, just plain old Vicodin. And um, eventually what happened was um, my mother, who was very ill at the time and on hospice, um, moved in with me because she needed a caretaker. And I started taking her meds. So then we moved on to uh, morphine and Dilaudid and whatever else I could snag from her bundle. So um, I was taking hundreds of milligrams of narcotics a day, um, you know, depending on the narcotic, um, mostly Oxycontin and um, morphine. Um, and then by the late 2014, um, my partner uh, was informed by my therapist what was going on. It all came out in therapy. So I ended up in my first rehab in 2014. Was that something you wanted to do? I don't think I would have chosen it. I was not ready to stop. Yeah, that was my next question. Oh. Yeah. Um, but being caught the way I was, um, I felt a lot of shame. And so I think I was willing to get clean for the people around me. You know, I had a teenage daughter like a tween age daughter. Um, I had my mom living with me and my partner and they all were like very disappointed and I was ashamed. And so I was like, yeah, of course I'll go to rehab. This was my first experience really being called out as, a, as an addict. Um, so I went to rehab. I was in rehab for three months. Um, it was a really good rehab. They, they were dual diagnosis. They dealt a lot with my trauma and actually helped me quite a bit deal with the trauma. And I came out not using, you know, and I didn't use for over a year. So they introduced me to a, the 12 step groups and I attended pretty regularly for a while. Um, and then I stopped. Um, it, it just didn't, it didn't sit well with me, partly because of my religious, um, abuse growing up. The whole higher power thing was real hard for me to get behind. And so even though I was sort of paying lip service to everything that I was doing in the program and I was working the steps and I had a sponsor and all that stuff. Eventually the sort of hypocrisy of what I was saying kind of drove me out. So I, um, eventually I just stopped going and, um, yeah. So, what's your what's your take on that? Do you find did you find those twelve step classes or um not classes 
meetings beneficial? Uh, I hear a, a lot of people say what you just said, which is they just kind of go through the motions. Well, I have um, more experience coming up with 12 steps and um, I am still partially involved in the 12 steps today. So I think there's benefits to 12 step groups. Um, do I think they're the end all and be all of recovery? No. Um, and I think that is partly because of their take on spirituality, which sound, which they try to make sound very all-encompassing, but which in fact is pretty limited when you look at it. Um, so I, I would say that they have their place and they've helped a lot of people. And so I don't think we should poo-poo them as like an option, um, but they're not everybody's option. So, so in 2014 and 15, you know, I was getting into recovery and things were going well. And then I sort of stopped going to meetings and then my eating disorder got really bad again and I stopped eating and I ended up back in eating disorder treatment. And I met um, a woman named Emily who I became really close with and um we became like instant best friends. And when I left treatment, I left before her, I promised um, that we'd stay in touch and we did. And um, through the course of like the next year or so, um, 2014 into two, early 2015, we stayed in touch and she eventually reached out and let me know um, because she was also an addict that she had relapsed um, and been in this relationship with this guy um, who was being really abusive and she needed help to sort of get out of that situation. So me and my then partner at the time, <clears throat> um, I was in treatment at the time, but my partner went and picked her up and um, she came to stay with us. So that was in 2014 or 15, 15, 2015. She came to stay with us and um, <laughs> that's, uh, she came to us for help, you know, and um, I have a lot of regret looking back over the years um, that we couldn't really provide her what she came for. Um, I was too sick, really. Um, with my own stuff going on and um, my partner at the time was too worried about me. Um, but what ended up happening was this. I fell in love with Emily and Emily with me. And so that eventually drove a wedge between me and my partner. Um, and even though we had been in an open relationship, uh, what really drove the wedge home was that Emily and I relapsed together. So Emily was my introduction to the world of intravenous drugs. Um, what type of 
IV drugs, anything specific? Uh, crack cocaine and then heroin. So, how did the uh, did you like the drugs? Loved them. Yeah, loved them. I mean, I don't think there's an addict alive who wouldn't tell you if they couldn't have the high the first time they got high um, without all the consequences that they wouldn't go back to using. Yeah. You know? It's one thing we tend to forget is that we like them. Yeah. We did them because they feel good. The problem is the feel good doesn't last and all the other shit that comes with it. Pardon my French. Um, yeah, no, that's okay. And uh, a lot of the stuff is um, yeah, there's just a lot of bad that comes along with it. Yeah. Exactly. That's the problem. So it didn't take very long. Sorry, my dogs are barking. That's okay. Stop in a second. Um, it didn't take very long for things to get real bad. Um, I know this might be a silly question, but when you were doing the drugs, because you said she introduced you, was she shooting you up or did she teach you how to do it yourself? She did it for me for a really long time. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, you know. Um, I remember the day that she looked at me and said, I wonder what, or I wish I had known what it was like to party with you. And I didn't know at the time that she was already using and I said, yeah, I've wondered that too. And she said, really? And that was all it took. And two days later, we were sitting on my bed and she was shooting me up with cocaine. And I knew the second it hit my veins that I was hooked and I was not going to stop. I've heard that a lot also, that the instantaneous high really gets people i there was a gentleman his father shot him up for his 17th birthday and he said it just like you he goes the minute it hit my vein i was hooked yeah the minute it hit the bloodstream he said it was like everything i've been searching for my whole life opened up in a second and i was like this is what i've been looking for yeah it goes back to uh, that instant um in the aa book the big book it still has a lot of stuff that relates. And he's Bill W said that when he had that first drink in a social setting, it, it opened up all types of doors. He was able to talk to people. He wasn't, he didn't have anxiety. He wasn't so nervous, all that type of stuff that he used to feel. He, I think the term they said was I had arrived or that's the term he used. Mm-hmm. He felt like he had arrived. Yeah. And I know that feeling of not being so nervous around people anymore. I think a lot of us addicts have social anxiety and we do a lot of our self-medication for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly the case for me too. It was part of my anxiety. So, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't even all the way down yet when I asked when we could do it again. And uh, it probably took a month before we were shooting up daily. And um, I went through my savings um, my former partner left me, 
Um, I lost the lease on our apartment. My daughter moved out to her godmother's. Uh, we started stealing uh, food because we spend all our money on dope. And, um, and it was probably about that time that we started shooting up the speedballs. And, um, and eventually, um, Emily overdosed really badly and ended up in the hospital. Took uh, 14 doses of Narcan to bring her back. Wow, 14. Mm-hmm. And she was on a respirator for three days. I didn't even know they'd go that far. I, I didn't even know they would. I that. didn't know they would either. And, and this was like total treatment throughout the course of the evening. But like it took five or six to like bring her back to consciousness at, at the overdose. And then they had to continuously administer Narcan throughout the evening. And they said they ran out of Narcan on two floors of the hospital. Um, and ended up total administering 14 doses of Narcan before they could stop. She um, had thought, so I, I had shot up first, of course, because she always shot me up first and then would shoot herself up. And um, I had fallen out and I had fallen out so hard that like I was unresponsive and she thought I'd overdosed. What is what do you mean by falling out? I never heard that term. Um, passed out. Passed out. Yeah. Okay. So I had passed out to the point where I was unresponsive. I nodded out, and um, she thought I'd overdosed and died, and she thought she was responsible, and so she decided to take the rest of what we had. So she was trying to overdose on purpose. If he thought you had died. Mm-hmm. So she ended up on a respirator for three days. Um, and so when she came home, they were like, well, that's it. We're not doing heroin anymore. It's just, it's too risky. So we went back to only doing crack. Thinking we're going to do the same drug. <laughs> we're only going to shoot up crack cocaine. And we did for months, you know, just daily grind, steal the food, get the Coke, go home, shoot up. Eventually things got kind of desperate. You know, I ran out of money. My partner had cut off my debit card um, cause she'd moved out and cut off our joint accounts and I didn't have any more money. So guess what we do? I have, a bad, I have a bad guess. I don't know. I was going to say prostitute yourself, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that's the only, I, that's a tale too often heard ever yeah. since I Those started. Those were the, the heydays of Backpage, right? Like, so um, Backpage was this uh, Oh, I've heard, I've heard of website. Backpage. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've heard of it. Yeah. So I don't even know what the state of it is now. I haven't tried to look. But, um, I think they shut it down because that, that yeah. was what the, the police were just going sting after sting after sting and back oh, yeah. pages. Because there was there was nothing but like massage and dancing and yeah. Bullshit. That, 
talking to you as a prostitute or former prostitute, that must be scary. It just must be scary. You I, have I don't no know. fear when you're shooting up cocaine on a daily basis. You're just like so not aware of the danger you're putting yourself in. You yeah, know, because, because not only were we doing that, but we would rob people. You know, we would we would play tricks on them, get them in the house, take their money, and then get them out of the house by telling them we were calling the police. Like we we would run scams, like anything to get more money. And you just it's like you can't even stop to fathom the danger of what you're doing because I think it would be too much really but I don't I don't even think you can feel it I couldn't I couldn't feel anything other than I need more and you're probably too scared to call the police God forbid I mean you can't really call the police and say hey I'm a prostitute and this is what just happened to me I need help it (laughs) you know what I mean it's you're working on the fringes of society you avoid the popo at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, um, Emily always used to say, like, if I overdose, don't call the EMT. Don't call, you know, like, here's what you do. You put me in the shower. You dump ice on me. You do the sternum rub. You, like, don't call the police. And um, she had had a second overdose um, and I'd called a friend and he'd come over and we'd done the whole thing and put her in the cold shower and woken her up and slapped her face and thrown a rub and everything, you know, and we're like barely keeping her conscious. Um, well, she wasn't really conscious, but keeping her breathing. And finally he's like, we can't keep doing this. We got to call the police. And we did. And man, was she mad at me. She didn't catch charges. Um, she was just taken to the hospital and treated, but she was super mad at me for having called. So I had this ingrained in my head, like you never call the police, you never call the police, you never call the police. So um, we eventually were evicted and my daughter wasn't living with us at the time. She was still with her godmother. And we were like, okay, well, we're going to have to find some kind of place to live. I can't, I'm not moving to the street. I have a kid. So uh, we kept looking, kept looking, kept looking. Well, Emily had a record. I didn't have a record, but I had an eviction and it was impossible to find housing. And uh, we looked for like a solid month for a new apartment and finally found one a little private landlord who was willing to overlook everything as long as we paid cash in hand. Signed a lease on an apartment and I got the big idea in my head that like we need to celebrate. (laughs) At about the same time, I got an inheritance. My stepfather passed away. I hadn't talked to him in years. Um, But he left me money. So I just got my inheritance money and we went picked up and went back to the apartment, partied hard for 
the entire night. And uh, about four in the morning, that's when we'd get real cranky <laughs> with each other, you know, after partying all night. And uh, Emily would start to get paranoid about uh, whether or not I hid some drugs somewhere that maybe she can still use. That, did I really love her? Was I just in it for the drugs? Just like, just get real accusatory. And um, so I was like, here, take the last of the drugs. You can do them. I'd done my half. It was her half anyway. So, so four o'clock in the morning, Emily shoots up, collapses to the floor, starts foaming at the mouth. What do I do? I can't call the police. And um, I just sat there like rubbing her sternum, pouring cold water on her, talking to her, smacking her face. like. And in the meantime, her lips turned purple. And I finally realized, oh my God, she's dying. And uh, so I finally called the EMTs and um, they were too late. That's heavy. Yeah. That's some heavy shit. Yeah. So, I mean, you can see it rattles me to this day. Um, You know, I, I loved Emily with all my heart. Um, there was some obviously really big problems in our relationship and it was really based in using. Um, can't say we ever would have made it without the drugs, but it doesn't mean I didn't love her. And um, losing her will always be my biggest regret. Always. Um, and I, I spiraled after that. Um, I got clean for about a week, went to her funeral and then lost it and went right back to using. And I had just learned to shoot myself up. <laughs> I was just about to say that was the person who used to get you high. So I guess you found your way of, uh, an addict will always find a way. Yeah. Yeah. I was never good at it. I was always terrible at it, but I found a way. Um, I'd be a bloody mess by morning, but I, I found a way to get those drugs into my vein. So for the next seven months, I used every day. I would try and get clean. I would stop. I would go to NA for like a week. And then I'd relapse. You know, it just, I couldn't, I could not bear to face what had happened. And um, I was just in a daze. My daughter was back with me. Um, she had been there when Emily overdosed. Um, 
I, I, and I'm grateful. She, I mean, I'm not grateful for her sake that she was there because um, I think it's obviously it traumatized her too. But um, I'm grateful I wasn't alone there that night. Um, but, you know, I continued to use and use and use and use and my daughter was living with me and um, finally, I was using to the point where I was having nightly seizures. Uh, I would use purposely to have a seizure because Were I thought suicidal? the seizures felt better. Mm, yeah, probably. What do you mean the seizures felt better? It would get you more high? Uh-huh. Yeah. Just like uh, I've heard with, I've never done heroin, but I've heard with heroin, um, you feel better after throwing up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I never threw up. <laughs> <laughs> Just think about how crazy we are. You literally yeah. are saying, I would like to go to into a seizure because it would make me feel better and get more high. That's yep. part of my I life. Did it, I did it all the time. I would walk that line. I, and one night I had a, a particularly bad seizure, probably a grand mal seizure. And, um, I remember coming to on my floor and um, I couldn't remember my name and I couldn't think like I, I like I was laying there thinking what's happened what am I like literally what am I and it took me about half hour 45 minutes to be able to start thinking like oh yeah I'm I remember my name I remember I'm a person I remember what I was doing oh yeah I'm on a floor and and prior to those things happening in my brain like I was laying there thinking in like angles and pictures and like stuff that didn't make sense like it, I can't even begin to describe the experience, but I, so I have this seizure and it, it takes me like half hour, 45 minutes to come out of it. And then I realize, holy crap, like if I didn't just come like within a hair's breadth of dying, I don't know what just happened, right? Like that can't, like, I don't know what kind of brain damage we're talking about, but like that can't have been good for my brain. Uh, it scared me. So I um, I went back to NA again and I um, tried to stay clean. I didn't, but what I were kept groups, going. I was going to say, it sounds like you kept trying to go back. What, mm -hmm. what were the groups like? I hear there's one common thread that I usually hear is a lot of people find them to be rigid. Um, it, it depends on the group. I mean, I mean I it found, really depends. I found NA very welcoming, but, you know, I mean, it, it's a 12-step group. It has rules. It has a program. It has, you know, we don't, they say we don't make demands. We only give suggestions, but you're expected to follow those suggestions, you know, otherwise you're not trying hard enough or you haven't hit bottom. I've hit bottom. I knew I was at the bottom. I was crawling along the bottom for all my might. 
but I, I just, I couldn't stop. And there wasn't anything calling out to me to make me stop. Um, but the groups themselves, I think I did find people there who were warm and welcoming. And that's why I came back was people um, that I could connect with and relate to. So I kept coming back to NA and then one night I had another seizure and I knocked a lamp off my table, my nightstand um, with my hand. And um, so my daughter came in and found me mid seizure. And here I am seizing on the floor and she's like, oh my God, I'm gonna go call 911. And I'm screaming through my seizure, like with my teeth chattering, no, 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 no. And all I can say is no popo, no popo <laughs> through my chattering teeth. And uh, she ended up calling a friend of mine instead. And they came over and like took care of me. But um, the next morning I came out and she was sitting on the sofa and she just screamed in my face, screamed in my face. Don't you ever fucking do that to me again. Sounds like the roles were reversed. Sounds like a instead of a, ch a child talking to the parent, or it, you know what I mean. It sounds like it yeah. was reversed right there. Sounds like yeah. she was talking to you as if you were the child in that scenario. Yeah. yeah, and that's a moment I will never forget. Like that will be burned into my memory. And that was that was um, April of 2017. There was an event like two days later. Um an NA event and at that event I asked somebody to sponsor me and she said call me every day and so I I started calling her every day and um, I stayed in recovery from that moment on. So you've been sober ever since your daughter decided to play mom to you? Yeah it sounds weird doesn't it? <laughs> No, but yeah, I mean, um, I mean, it was the moment that, like, I realized how badly I was hurting her, like, how terrified she was to talk to me like that. Like, I had a very shy, mild-mannered daughter, and for her to talk to me like that it was, like, so beyond the pale of what, like, had ever happened before. It was just shocking. So I just realized like what I'm doing, like I'm gonna leave her without a mother. This kid who like just screwed up her energy to tell me, don't do that to me again. And uh, I just I just realized that like I was gonna die and she was gonna have no mom. And that just suddenly became unacceptable. So what did you do at that point to get sober and stay sober? Was there, was there anything, did you take a different approach this time? Or was there just get back to the, what you've been doing before and just work harder? I, I think, yes, I got back to what I was doing before. I went to NA this time instead of AA. So originally um, you were going to AA? 
Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I think that made a difference and that I could relate more. Um, I found a sponsor that I admired a lot. Um, and that carried me for quite a while until there started to be things that we didn't see eye to eye on. And then I switched sponsors and then I had another really great sponsor for two years and now I've switched again. But um, finding sponsors in the program has been like a huge, 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 huge piece of like how I've stayed in recovery. The sponsors I've chosen. And well, you got to have a good open line of communication uh -huh. with your uh -huh. sponsor. You got to be able to trust them. Yes. You got to be able to, they're there to provide a judgment-free zone and just assist you in any way they can. Yep. And, and you got to have a rapport with them so that you feel like you can trust them because they're teaching you through their trustworthiness and you're placing trust in them like how to trust again, how to, because when you're out there using, you don't trust anybody, you don't trust yourself, you don't have any faith in anything. And I had to learn trust and faith and vulnerability and like all this stuff all over again. So I learned that through a sponsor and it was hugely helpful. And I worked the stops, I, I worked them, I've worked them multiple times. Um, and I think it's that level of self-inquiry, whether you do it in NA or you do it in a different program or you do it with a therapist or whatever, like, I think that level of self-inquiry is super important because I think you have to get to know yourself and accept like what happened in your life as an addict and accept what happened in life before your life as an addict um to move on and build a new life so yeah it's good to do a self-assessment see where you're at see what needs to be fine-tuned and tweaked and right yeah I really needed to I needed to start admitting to all the trauma from my childhood and all the trauma from my adulthood I needed to um tell the truth about everything that I'd done as an addict that like I was super not proud of. I had to feel like I could forgive myself. Um, you know, I, all of that I got to through both therapy and working steps. So, so now my um, experience is a little bit different. So I, let me ask you this yeah. real quick. You um, you mentioned that you had an issue with religion. How did you work the twelve steps this time? Did did how did you understand your personal higher power this time? Well, <laughs> um, I had come into it this time with the idea that like I'm just going to use the group right a lot of people do that yeah, um, group of drunks G-O-D group of yeah. drunks or a group of drug addicts 
So I used that in the beginning and then I sort of leaned into the idea that like, okay, I don't think we as like individual human beings are like the sum total of intelligent life in the universe. Like I think either we're all connected in some way that forms a web that's sort of greater than us or the universe has some sort of maybe intelligent, I don't know if I believe intelligent design so much as like a natural flow. Um, but like something is like more powerful than me for sure. I mean, the universe is more powerful for me from, than me for sure, whether there's an intelligent design behind it or not. It's just a much greater, more massive thing. So I started to understand my universe, the universe to be my higher power. And that worked for a really long time um, until it didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tell us about that. So this last year has been the biggest challenge I've had in recovery. Um, you know, I had a really good run of about four years in recovery. Uh, life got really good. I went back to school. I met somebody in recovery and fell in love again. Uh, I became trained as a certified peer specialist. So I was working as a peer, helping other people get into recovery, uh, which really broadened my views on recovery and uh, beyond sort of NA and 12 stuff and like helped me see other pathways to recovery and helped me understand harm reduction and, um, you know, so I, my my world just sort of like opened up and kept improving for like four years. You know, I really found my like purpose. And um, this past year, um, it started out great. You know, I bought a house with my partner. Uh, we got married. Um, you know, things were looking great, and then. I'll be damned if it wasn't the same thing that brought me down all those years ago. We decided to have a baby. And the same damn thing happened. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So this time, my partner's younger than me. And so this time it was my partner that lost the baby. But of course, you know, both partners lose the baby when you're expecting together. And um, and this time it didn't, like NA didn't really fit or comfort me. Like the whole, it's part of your higher powers plan. Like you just gotta let go and let God, like, all that stuff just sat really not okay with me. And I realized that I'd been sort of just letting the higher power thing slide as long as life went well and not really investigating it very deeply. Because um, it was like, oh yeah, my higher power is great to me <laughs> as long as everything was going okay. Yep. Um. But when things got really tough this last couple of months, really, um, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me, you know? Um, so I have been doing more, a more Buddhist approach to recovery recently. 
It's very, yeah, I, um, I've dabbled in that myself quite a bit. I actually, are you familiar with Refuge Recovery? Mm-hmm. And I I've just, been going, I've been going to Dharma, Recovery Dharma. Okay. I just um, interviewed Noah Levine of Refuge Recovery. He's the one who founded that. Oh, I just did a wow. ep- few episodes ago. Yeah. Really, really cool dude. Really cool dude. Yeah. So they're like sister programs, right? Like, um, well, he recovery, even said, recovery Dharma. yeah. And he, he even still goes to 12 step meetings joking around. He goes, he goes, I'm a hater sometimes, but I'm a member. That's a hater. Um, things. I, the reason I like the Buddhist approach is because it's not religious and it's really more of a science of the mind. This is not going to become a sales pitch for Buddhism, but that's one of the things that we need to investigate more as addicts is our mind and our brain and what's going on inside there, what's causing the cravings. And there's a lot of stuff you can align with Buddhism, but there's also a lot of stuff you can align with Christianity, Judaism, a bunch of different things. Uh Yeah, I have really found it to help because it fits more of what rings true for me, which is like, like when I lost, so um, our, my third child, the one we just lost was a girl. Um, so when we lost our daughter, um, I couldn't really accept it. You know, it was like, but we had all this planned and we were going to do this and we were going to do this for her. And we had the nursery all planned. And, and when we lost her, it was like, my world was just crushed and I couldn't let go and I was like swimming in depression and and then I went to a retreat like a 12-step retreat and everybody kept telling me like you know you just gotta let go and let God and and I was just I would get angrier and angrier and um and then I decided to check out uh I think it was I went to a refuge recovery meeting first and um I heard like for the first time, like there's pain and then there's non-acceptance of the pain that's caused suffering. And I finally realized it's not the fact that we lost my daughter. I mean, that happens and it's sad that it happens and it sucks. But like the fact that I was not accepting the fact that we lost her making me suffer that's your root cause of the problem the root cause of your suffering right it was just I could not accept that like the future that we had been planning wasn't going to happen and so I was just I was just miserable yeah there's a saying in Buddhism I believe it's in Buddhism that the minute you want life to be other than it is that's when you start suffering Mm -hmm. yeah so I've found a lot of peace in the last couple of months going to um, Recovery Dharma. And um, I am still going to NA. I go to one meeting a week. I go to my home group. Um, I still sponsor in NA. I still have a sponsor in NA. They are all very aware of what I'm doing. So I, it's all on up and up. Um, and I'm, I'm content for now. To, to have it this way um, because I think it's going to keep me in recovery 
and that's the bottom line, right? Is I have I'll I'll have five years in April of continuous recovery, and I want to stay that way because I know no matter what, I don't want to go back to using because I almost died. So I'm gonna stick around. Stick around for your daughter also. Mm-hmm. How old is she now? She just turned 20. Oh, um, look at your smile. You can see that's your pride <laughs> and joy. Uh, she is. She really is. And, um, you know, her and I have come a long way in the last five years. And I feel really, really blessed um, by her forgiveness and by her um the opportunity to have her watch me grow and you know we really love each other we still butt heads <laughs> but we really love each other and I wouldn't have that if it wasn't for recovery like I was definitely losing her so I'm grateful today yeah so again towards the end here let me ask you this what is the biggest lesson you've learned from all of this? I guess lesson I've learned is that running away and numbing and hiding from the feelings that I don't want to face will ultimately always bring me down and can in fact kill me. And when I choose to accept and explore and allow my feelings, life is pretty okay. It's pretty basic. Yeah, it is. And do you have any advice for people that might be listening, having a tough time, anything you wanna say to the listeners? Oh, just the one thing I really still take from NA or any 12-step program is keep coming back. Keep trying. Keep, no matter how many times you fall off a wagon, climb back on, or you pick up again when you didn't want to or whatever, just keep trying because whether it's through harm reduction or through 12 step or through Buddhism or through anything else, like there's a better life. There's more wellness available. If you just stay alive. Yeah. That's a big thing. Stay alive. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great interview so far. I think that we're wrapping up here. What do you, what do you think? How did you feel? How does this all feel to you? Yeah, it feels good. It feels good to have told my story. I feel like every time I do, I pay a little homage to Emily and I make her story kind of mean something a little bit. You know, I mean, I know it does to her family and those of us who loved her, but I think by sharing a little bit of our shared path and my story, um, I hope I can help someone else not go down that road. And I'm sure we're going to get people listening to this that you're going to have them relate to you, what you've been through and definitely help them out. Yeah, thanks. All right, that's all we got for today. Now, 
One last thing I want to say to our viewers and listeners is if you can go below, click subscribe. Also give us a like. Um, you can join us on Facebook. We've got a page and a group under the group. If you go to the events tab, you're going to see all of our Zoom meetings. We do them daily, sometimes twice a day, even sometimes three times a day. Um, also give us a like on the Facebook page. We're on Reddit, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. So we're all over the place. Um, so check us out. And that's all we have for today. So until next time, folks.